I'm shocked. I didn't know you went to church. <laughs> when, when I get half as old as uh, Mike here, I hope I look half as good as he does. <laughs> but do you trust him? Or do you just say that you trust him? I mean, words are cheap. It's easy to say. But when it comes to the 11th hour, when it comes to that moment when we really have to put it all on the line, do we really trust him? Charles Blondie was a tightrope walker from over in Europe, and he came over to the United States mid-19th century and uh, put that tightrope across the Niagara Falls. And in that experience, he went across once, came back, and he went a second time and came back. And then uh, he got a wheelbarrow. That was going to be part of it. And he put the wheelbarrow on the line. And he says, how many of you think I can do this? And they were just cheering him without end. And he said, okay, uh, which one of you will get in? That's the difference between saying that I trust and actually trusting. And yet we live in a culture, it makes it hard for us to trust. That's not where we live. 22% of the American population say they trust nothing in the media. There's 8% that say they trust no one in government. And then you begin to move more inside where you live and you realize that oftentimes it's even in our homes where there's no trust. There's a spouse that doesn't trust the other. And sometimes for good reasons. There are children that don't trust parents and parents that don't trust children. There are those helicopter parents and those submarine parents and sometimes it's a matter of just always keeping our eye on that child, do we trust them? And so we reach into a culture that is full of mistrust. And then we're asked to come into the church where in fact we're said, we're told to trust, trust God. Trust the God I cannot see. Trust the Jesus that we worship, but maybe we don't know him as well as we think. Uh, That's why that passage of scripture in the 20th chapter of Matthew is so significant to me. We know it particularly as a commission or a great commission, if you will. And in the midst of that, sometimes we miss the bigger picture that God has in that for us. Because when Jesus is resurrected and he's there, he tells his disciples, well, if you have a Bible or if you don't, just look on next to the one sitting there and take a look at Matthew 28 for a moment. Beginning with verse 16, some of you have got it memorized. You don't even have to look. But it reads something like this. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee Uh, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. 
but some doubted. Uh, then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything. Not just some things. Everything. I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Isn't it fascinating to hear the promises that are in here? I will be with you to the very end of the age. And, and Robin, uh, others have preached from this text in the past, and you're very familiar with it, but let me, let me put a word into this text that's not there. Now, that wouldn't be uncommon, because uh, how many of you have been in a class where you studied the book of Revelation? Some of you studied the book of Revelation? Yeah. And you know that the fundamental thesis of the book of Revelation is Christian hope. And yet the word hope never appears in the book of Revelation. That's why oftentimes we have to come back and look at a text and say, okay, what, what's God really trying to say here to me? I can read the words that are on the page, but how are they connected? And what's the big picture as opposed to the individual request? And it seems to me that the big picture in this text is the issue of trust. Do you trust me? It said that they, Jesus had commanded them to go to the mountain. And while um, there, he finally comes after, and some fell down and worshipped him. Ah, but some doubted. Every English translation that's in this room has the same word, the word doubt. It is just the common word that's used in this text. But you know, when you move from culture to culture, you come to realize that it's a connotation of doubt may change from place to place. This word can also be translated, and some were hesitant. And I think I understand that part. There are a lot of things in life that God has asked me to do, and I, I, I've just paused. I've been hesitant uh, about uh, what he's asking me to do. But in this case, wow, this is huge. I mean, we're talking about the resurrected Lord. He's now in their presence. But let me ask you, this past week, how many of you have seen somebody who died and was resurrected three days later? No? Well, don't be too hard on these disciples. We don't know that there was only the 11 and maybe one or two were hesitant about this worship piece or this Jesus who's been resurrected. Or maybe there were others like the 72 that he had sent out previously, two by two. We don't know the exact number or the two people who were there. We do know this much though, that some of them that were there were hesitant about worshiping him, uh, bowing their knee 
before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And can I say to you that, uh, you know, I, I live in New England. Oh, by the way, I bring you uh, greetings from Tom Brady and Bill Belichick <laughs> and all those people that you would trust with your life. Just don't give them your football. Trust is broken all around us. And yet I realize that even in New England, where churches have been dying for over 100 years, where we find six states that are now the least churched of all the United States, stop and think about it for a moment. It's where the church began. That church of evangelistic heart, the, the, the ones who came with that mission to share the gospel of Jesus with the Native American Indians. And it was hard. Some died along the way. And in fact, their relationship with the Indians was not all that positive. But they understood the mission of God that says, all right. Your mission in this world is to make disciples. I'm assuming that when you, those of you who have confessed Christ as Lord, when you came up out of that watery grave of baptism, that it was immediately said to you, okay, now you go and make another disciple. Do you remember that being said? No, many times we just get people to the baptistry and on the other side and we feel like things are well along the way. But the reality is there's so much more to trusting God. When we come, not just the shed blood, not just the resurrected Lord, not the one who's been victorious over the grave. Not, not, not that alone. But what he also wants us to join him in doing. What a privilege. You know, there were a lot of things that uh, I asked my dad if I could help him when I was smaller. He was building a house, and he gave me a hammer and a box of nails, and he said, go out in the front yard. So I put all those nails out in the front yard, one by one. He didn't trust that I could really put those walls together. And he was right. But to see along life's way, we grow and we realize that there are things that are happening in our lives. And ultimately, as far as being here this morning, can I remind you, you are here not just to worship the resurrected Lord, but also to be thinking about making disciples. For whom are you praying that they will become a follower of Jesus? What group are you involved with where the discussion centers around making disciples? And yet what I've come to realize from this passage of scripture is that if trust is the foundation for what he's asked us to be and do, then there are some things that have to be clarified. For example, number one, if you really trust Jesus, as you go, you will trust him. 
Now notice that that's not a command. There's only one command in this whole section of verses 16 through 18. Uh, that basic command, I, right up front, make disciples. The command is not to go. It's as you go, make disciples. Isn't it intriguing that God didn't have to command us to go? He already knew we were going to be going. We're a going kind of people. Read back in the Old Testament, they were always on the move. And some of it by God's direction, some of it by their own. Jesus was always on the move. You read the Gospel of Mark from beginning to end, and Jesus is moving continuously. It's not something that we have to be commanded to do. But here's the difference. It's as you go. Make disciples. One of the ways I try to do this is through uh, the way I bank. I bank at three different banks. Now, it's not because I'm wealthy, but there's a dollar that goes in one, and one dollar that goes in a second, a dollar that goes in the third. Now, some of the uh, younger people in here would not know what I mean when I use the word check. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, you don't have any checks. Uh, so you bank online. Everything you do is online. And I refuse to bank online because I can't see and talk to the person on the other end of the line. My children would say it's because I really don't know how to bank online. <laughs> and they might be right. I really haven't tested that. But I go into a bank and there I am. And there's, first of all, I walk in and there's, there's Jenny. Jenny is kind of the supervisor of this bank that I go into. And, and Jenny is, is saying just as immediately as I walk in the door, hi Dan, how are you today? Which teller are you gonna talk to today? Because <laughs> I hold up the line, that's what she's saying. But there's Tim, and Tim, Tim is a, a pretty big boy, uh, just finished his degree in uh, massage, masseuse therapy, and he's just waiting for the right time, the right place where he can get uh, employed there while he works at the bank. And Tim and I are talking virtually every time I go in there, and I'll ask him about the teller that's two windows down because he's interested in her. But he's a little socially awkward. He doesn't really know how to go about this. And so every time we go in, he would ask me a question about how do we do this? So it gives me a chance to use an illustration of Jesus. And Jesus being able to talk to people and listening to them and asking the right questions as to where they are in life. And so little by little, I can open up the Bible before Tim, right there, and I don't take it with me, but I can open up the Bible for Tim just so that he's growing in this first phase of relationship. That's the easy one. Four windows down is Christine. Christine has been uh, divorced twice, living with a man that's not her husband. She has two daughters. 
who, uh, whose father, the first husband, has custody. I seldom walk out of that bank that Christine isn't in tears. I don't intend to make her cry. But I'll ask her, how are the girls? And sometimes there's a real joy because she just had them over the weekend and they did some things together and so things are positive. But maybe she hasn't had them for a week or two and so there are those tears that well up. And I said, Christine, you from New Hampshire always? Yeah, born and raised here. I said, you ever been to Vermont? No, never. My whole life. She's only an hour and 15 minutes from Vermont. And right across the state line in Vermont is what's called Queechy Gorge. Have any of you ever been to Queechy Gorge? All right, well, let me clarify so that when the future comes, you don't get confused. Uh, Vermonters call it the Grand Canyon of the West, of the East. The Grand Canyon of the East. <laughs> They're the biggest exaggerators <laughs> you have ever met. You have to know that life in Vermont's pretty slow. It just depends on how fast the dairy cows are going to get milked each day. Uh, but they call Quichy Gorge the, uh, the, the Grand Canyon of the East. And I'm telling you, it is not anything but a gorge. But it has its own beauty. And right now, with the leaves and color, you have to understand, it's a beautiful place. There are hiking trails all up and down this little uh, gorge. And so I told Christine, I said, you know, you let me know. Some Saturday when you have the girls with you, let me know in advance. My wife and I will take you and your girls to Queechy Gorge. She said, Dan, no one's ever offered to take us anywhere. Let me just say to you that there are little stages, there, there are small steps along the way where we build relationships with people as we go. And the question is, where are you going? And as you go to those places, are you even thinking in terms of making disciples? And sometimes that takes a long time. It takes patience as well as trust that God is going to open the right doors for you to be able to make disciples. Well, that's just one part of it. As you go, you have to trust in Him. But secondly, as you go, uh, you will also need to grow. Now, that's the part I don't like. Growing is hard. That means change. You know, some churches have difficulty growing because they hate change. They just don't want to change. Our family lived in Scotland for two years, and I could take you all over the countryside of Scotland where their church buildings are closed and boarded up, and it's because the people refused to change. We took our family one Sunday to a little church down by uh, Aberdeen, and there were, there were uh, eight people there, not counting the six in our family, which made 14. 
And our oldest child was six. So you can imagine the potential mayhem that's there with four children, six and under, when everybody else is 60 and older, okay? But God's grace and mercy were great that day because our kids were never better behaved. And so I thought, okay, thank you, Lord. What is this all about? And the people came up and said, you know, if the other children in the community were as good as yours, we'd like them to come. And I suppose the only thing that they missed at that church and why they were dying and there were only eight people left was that they missed the point. Because the command is to make disciples. And to do that, we have to grow. I have a friend in Nashua, New Hampshire. Her name is Jen. And she can tell this story better than I can. Well, painting for me is my release. It's my conversation with God. When I painted Asia, it was therapy. When my child says, I feel like half of a person, and then I can take a talent that God gave me and create this painting that really expresses her fear and her frustration and my fear. And people get it when they see it. Everything was complete and life was good. And then Asia started getting sick. So this all started happening right after I was baptized. And um, that spring, she just got weaker. And by fall, she um, couldn't raise her arms. She was having trouble walking, sitting, moving, anything that required a, a movement, she couldn't do. And then Christmas, she. Um, we were taking family pictures and she started crying. She had never expressed before what was going on. She said, Mommy, I can't smile anymore. And that was the moment that we knew something was seriously wrong. We ended up at Boston Children's at a neuromuscular clinic and they ran some tests on her and they told us that um, it was muscular dystrophy. I'd never heard of it. I never knew anything about it. I didn't know anyone. And they were sitting there explaining to us that Asia was going to continue to get weak and that she was going to end up in a wheelchair. She was going to need support around the clock and got really angry. And I stopped going to church after that. I turned away from God. It was all his fault in my eyes. I had been faithful. I was baptized, I was his child, and he was taking everything away from my child. I decided I'd go back to downtown one day to prove to myself that God was not there. I don't know what I was thinking, but I was so angry, and it was like, I'm just going to go, and it's going to reaffirm that he is not there. When wor worship was done and the sermon came on, it wasn't Ron speaking, it was Tim Lafferty. God had had the most perfect plan for me. And he was showing me in that moment, I have never left you, I am here, and I am gonna show you what I've set up for you to prosper and to be okay. I didn't know Tim's story. I knew nothing about him. All I knew is that he baptized me because he didn't have on a Red Sox shirt. I am a Yankees fan. 
and I did not want Ron baptizing me. So I chose Tim, and that was it. Uh, that's all I ever knew about him. So when he started talking that day, and the first time I ever heard him say his sons had muscular dystrophy, it was overwhelming. The man who brought me to Christ knew my darkest fears. But it didn't get easier. It didn't get easier when I decided to come back and come back to church and turn back to God. Asia didn't get better. She kept getting worse, but we had a community this time. And now she's walking and she's talking and she's moving without a cane, without a brace, without a wheelchair, without anything. And she was baptized earlier this year. I think with anyone that's facing anything, anything, disease, loss, you have to trust him that there's a bigger picture. You might not see it right now. It may take a month, it may take a year, it might take longer, but you have to trust. Tim and Joan Lafferty understand what it means to struggle with life and two boys. They were both Joe and Peter, now with Jesus. But they were guys who understood that their role in life was such that they could witness, they could make disciples, even handicapped by these chairs. And they did. God never promised that life would be easy. He never promised that there would be a smooth road for us. But to make disciples means that we're going to grow. That's why he said in the same passage, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And why the scripture studies and the small groups and the one-on-one -on -one discipleship and all the different means by which we can grow up in him. So very important. And it's a lifelong process. There's a third picture here. It's not as obvious as the other two. But you see, when you trust God, you'll trust Him as you also give. As you give. You know, the hardest thing for us really is not just growing. It's also giving. And yet there's a passage of Scripture just a few chapters before this. In which Jesus says this. Woe to you, teachers of the law of Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, that you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He says, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And so what he's simply suggesting is that there is this issue of giving the tithe, giving a tenth, but there's also a matter of giving more. Okay, Rob, I'm on a medal. I hear rumors around here that in the next year or two, but if Jesus doesn't come back, all the improvements on this building will be finished and paid for. 
Huh? I, I think that's awesome. Praise God. And all that does is it frees up more money for you to support missionaries around the world in different places who will make disciples. And may I suggest to you that it's not going to be easy, but let's raise that missions budget. Let's raise the opportunities, even locally, for us to get involved with others and to start giving and giving generously. That's possible only because of what he says at the last. And lo, I shall be with you always, even to the very end. Isn't it intriguing how we would give 30% of our income to pay a mortgage on the house, but we debate whether or not a church should give 30% of its income to missions? I'm going to stop meddling and just simply say, trust him with all facets of your life. Everything that you have and everything that you are is built upon the commission to make disciples. And that means you have to trust God. Let's pray.